Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. Leadership is not about the leader, it's about the lead. Those who desire to serve as Jesus did must unite around a commitment to humility, self-denial, and other-centeredness. Listen in as Doug Stringer and Dr. David Geiertsen discuss what it means to empty ourselves and serve others with compassion. Share this message with a friend and subscribe for weekly encouragement and inspiration. If we can pray for you as you seek God's will, just email your request to prayer at somebodycares.org. We'd be honored to lift you up in prayer. After this episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit a wordinseasonpodcast.org to download a free 30-day devotional that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. What are some of the things you're doing right now, especially dealing with helping CEOs and business leaders and other leaders in their leadership? Well, Doug, let me just uh, begin by saying how privileged I am to be a part of this with you. And Jody, so great to see you again. You were exceedingly generous with your introductions. So we're just so thankful for the journey that uh, the Lord has has had us on. Too many years now to count, Doug. We're at a point now where we stop uh, counting these years. But in in my kind of capstone years, I don't like to call them retirement years, but in my capstone years, I've had the privilege of being more deeply invested in equipping the next generations of leaders and supporting uh, current leaders in terms of their sense of calling. And uh, worked uh, particularly in uh, the last few years with doctor of ministry students at Asbury Theological Seminary and uh, investing in uh, about 300 now uh, over the last five years who are serving internationally in a variety of ways. And then as I stepped away from my administrative role and continue to teach, I've also continued to do a lot of consulting with uh, executive leadership transitions and particularly in the uh, faith-based organization structure and predominantly within higher education, but also within Christian broadcasting, as well as in uh, human service uh, support uh, organizations like the Salvation Army, for example. And uh, a lot of work uh, has been done in helping find the new presidents. The the last few years have caused a lot of people, and we'll probably talk more about this, Doug, I'm sure, you know, to question whether or not uh, they really should be in leadership. And so a lot of my work is what we call triage work in helping leaders who are wondering, is it really time to throw in the towel and move on? And then helping organizations that are in the process of searching for new leaders really figure out who is it that can step up to these unprecedented times. And so I've had the privilege uh, working with the Dingman Company and, and helping find new presidents for Moody Bible Institute and for Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, for Western uh, Theological Seminary, for Covenant Theological Seminary. I've been doing a lot of work with the Intrust Center for a Theological Education uh, in terms of uh, helping several of those seminaries and schools of religion uh, get ready for uh, leadership transitions. And then most recently, I've been working with the Association for Biblical Higher Education, particularly focused in uh, board governance training. One of the things I've discovered in my triage work that often the reason uh, leaders are crashing and burning is because they don't have the right kind of accountability relationship with their boards of directors and boards of trustees. And so I've been assisting uh, quite a bit with uh, board governance training for helping uh, boards understand the incredibly complex roles 
that uh, Christian CEOs are facing in Christian organizations, and then working uh, with them as they onboard new leaders to be sure that that, that partnership uh, between the CEO and the board is as healthy as it can possibly be. So I'm, I'm very thankful for having uh, the opportunity to continue to serve and uh, look forward uh, again to this opportunity, Doug, with, uh, with you. And please call me Dave. Uh, if I can may call you Doug, you may call me Dave. That would be great. We were talking earlier, actually, I was uh, just processing and pulling from recall. My early years in formation in the calling God put in my life 40 years ago, back in the early 80s, really part of my early transition of formation was from people like Dr. Evan Lewis Cole, who you were friends with as well, and mm-hmm. uh, Leonard Ravenhill, who had big, big influence yeah. in my life, David Wilkerson, but also yeah. yourself and, and the 700 Club and CBN, Regent University, had a huge impact in my life in various ways because of the connections there. And I'm just really excited that you're on with us today. Uh, I did about 20 courses called Living by the Book, that you actually were the uh, the editor for all that, and actually some of your material we had to go through, and and I remembered last night it was Salt and Light, I believe, was one of the courses that we took that you did. Yeah, I was privileged to work with CBN Publishing on a variety of of disciple making uh, processes. One of the challenges with Christian broadcasting is that we we have big nets and we can harvest quickly, but then the challenge is how do you take people on to maturity. And so Dr. Robertson had invited me to do a variety of, of equipping kinds of, of things on the 700 Club, uh, teaching in the Good Shepherd series and Foundations of the Faith, and then uh, to come up with what he called a Bible college in a box. And uh, we ended up with 20 courses that we believed uh, you know, God could use. And we had several thousand people uh, to go through that. And Doug, I'm glad you were one of them. And it's always good to hear that uh, somebody has benefited from the efforts that we made. Well, I wish I could take my Regent University pastoral certificate from those courses and not have to pay the kind of money it would be to transition them into actual credits. But I'm very proud of that. Even though I've got other degrees, I'm so proud of that particular one because I think it had a lot to, again, uh, my early formation in, in calling in life and ministry. So thank you for doing that. And, you know, we always talk about leaving a lasting legacy and the kingdom of God's built our relationships and watching leaders like yourself. And of course, seeing Wayne Hillsden on right now from Jerusalem and others that it really is about relationships because the degree of influence we have or will leave to the next generation is determined on the level of those relationships, first with God, then with one another. And something that I've observed about your life and others is that you do see it more incarnational than just institutional, although we use the institution as a platform, not a box to hold God in. And so tell us a little bit about your journey. What got you into education and the things that you're doing now? Well, I'm not sure how far to go back. I, I uh, do need to say that I come from a broken home and my dad was an alcoholic and I ran away from home when I was 13 and was taken in off the streets up in uh, northern Ontario, uh, northern Canada, uh, by a free Methodist minister and his wife who were pastoring a, a small mission church uh, in that town of Timmins. And uh, basically, uh, they had a ministry of taking in street kids. There were over 60, 60 young men and women that they took in over the years, and all but one of us came to faith. And uh, several of us ended up in in full-time vocational Christian work. Uh, So I owe a great deal to Jim and Mary. And and that first year, I was 13 going on 14, and a lot of depression, a lot of challenge. And uh, Jim uh, 
one night uh, sensed that I was about to do something uh, drastic. I was going to disappear out into the bush. I wasn't sure if I was going to take my own life, but I uh, just felt like I needed to disappear. And uh, Marion had to work at night, 11 at night till seven in the morning, six days a week to keep them in the ministry because the, the two little churches couldn't pay them enough to really support them. And so we were up late and, you know, Jim sensed something was going on. And I said, you know, Jim, nobody gives a blank about me. I'm not sure life is even worth living. And, uh, you know, I'd sat under some preaching and, uh, you know, Jim preached the word, which was wonderful. And Jim was highly relational in terms of his approach to ministering people one-on-one. And he uh, pulled out his Bible and uh, turned to Psalm 27, verse 10, because I had just said, you know, my mother and my father don't want me. I, you know, I'm not sure that that my life is worth anything. And he had me read that 10th verse, which says, when your mother and father reject you or abandon you, then the Lord will take you up. And that was the moment that I really realized that God loved me, that he had sent his son to die for me. I hadn't sat under, you know, heavy preaching, or we hadn't sung, you know, 30 verses of just as I am uh, in a, you know, in a highly animated altar call. But there was just that moment when the Holy Spirit revealed that he did have a plan for my life. And uh, I didn't do well in school. I, to this day, I don't have a high school diploma. But uh, Jim and Marion felt like God had a plan for my life, and they were able to get me into a Bible school uh, down in Toronto. And it was there where I came alive. The Word of God really began to minister into my spirit. And uh, I did two years there and then ended up you know, feeling that uh, God wanted me to go on for some additional education. So I ended up coming to the States and going to Spring Arbor University and then on to Michigan State University, back to Toronto for a bit of time and went to the University of Toronto and then finally finished up with the PhD at Michigan State, <clears throat> feeling that God was you know, calling me into something. Wasn't sure what it was. I thought maybe it was pastoral ministry. So I did pastor a bit early on, but uh, it was really clear that the call was to invest in the next generation of leaders. And to somehow, uh, the last uh, thing that Jim and Marion said to me when I uh, got in the car to drive the 400 miles south to Toronto from Timmins was, you know, David, uh, I said to him, you know, how do, how do I ever repay you for what you've done for, for me? And they said, the only way you can repay us is to try and do for others what we've tried to do for you. And so that's been my sense of calling is how can I invest in particularly those that don't appear to be investable. Uh, Jim and Marion had a calling. Uh, Jim was Salvation Army in his rootage. Uh, he had a calling to the least, the left, and the lost, the people that uh, others didn't see much good in. Uh, Marion had an incredible ability to, to see what God could do in somebody's life. But as I got in the car, she grabbed me by the lapels, and she looked in my eyes, and she said, Now, David, don't you ever forget the pit from which you were dug. And I thought, well, Marion, I'm, I'm not sure that's very encouraging. <laughs> but the reality was that sowed a seed, Doug, and I know this is such a theme with your ministry, of recognizing but for God, you know, that uh, we have treasures and earthen vessels, and we wear down and we crack and we chip. But uh, we always need to remember the pit from which we were dug, and that if God blesses us, as he has with your ministry, and multiplied, you know, influence that it's only because of his amazing grace. And so that has kind of driven my commitments to investing in uh, current and future leaders to remember that it's, it's only because of the grace of God and the power and presence of his Holy Spirit 
uh, and the authority of his word that allows us to do anything meaningful for the kingdom. You know, that really resonated with me in, in, in many ways in what you just said, because when I left, I went to high school in Japan because my father and stepfather were both in the military. But I went to high school in Japan at a U.S. military base, and I left there needing one class to graduate from Camp Zama American High School. When we went to Washington State, I just got myself into just trying to find direction, ended up leaving school with that one class to graduate. My high school in Japan actually wrote a letter to a community college in Washington State saying I just needed one class to graduate. So that community college received me based on that letter. And from there, I went on to Western Washington University for a short time, back to Skagit Valley College. And then from there, came to Houston in 1978. I did find myself one day waking up and I had 17 homeless people living in my apartment, uh, put 12 more in another home. And that's how we started. So everything you just said really resonated because I didn't know have a clue what I was doing. I just said, Lord, just here I am. I'm available to you. Just do whatever you need to do. And really looking at the past of what God has done, he's just looking for our availability and our simple obedience. So thank you for sharing that. Tell me a little bit about your journey into a deep faith, being what we used to call being born again. What was it that actually that you can remember that moment where you got a revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection? It was really the, the, the word becoming, you know, uh, alive and well. It moved from Logos to Rhema for me. It was like it almost leapt off the page when I uh, read Psalm 27, verse 10. Now, you know, prior to that, my, my family had been religious. Uh, my, uh, we, we were Anglicans. We went to church twice a year, whether we needed to or not, you know, Christmas and Easter. And, uh, you know, there was always a kind of an awareness of a God who was up there, but within that high Anglican tradition, it was a pro-cathedral we attended. You know, God was distant, he was removed. And so with the chanting and the incense and all of those kinds of things, I was very much aware of the, of the majesty of God and the authority of God, <clears throat> that he was high and lifted up. But I wasn't sure uh, about this concept that he would come down and actually uh, be interested in individuals, particularly like me, from less than the best kinds of backgrounds. And for some reason, uh, this incarnational understanding, you know, the, I love that idea of the word becoming flesh. And of course, that refers to Jesus. And, but for, for me, there was this incarnation of that simple verse of Scripture. And, and it awakened me to the fact that I needed to do, learn and to fill myself full you know, with the word of God. But also I was aware because of uh, some of the influences, Jim and Marion came out of a uh, heavy emphasis on the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Some might call them charismatic or Pentecostal in their orientation. And so there was always this emphasis that the only way we can fully understand the word and have it burn in our bones and live in and through our lives is to embrace uh, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so it was a little bit later in my journey where I began to understand how critical it was that I uh, took another step. Uh, I'd received Christ as my Savior, but I needed him to come in in power. And, and so because of the influences of uh, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, the PAOC, uh, some of the influences of some of the charismatic renewal movements that were occurring uh, around me, and it turned out that our Anglican priest, by the way, was one of the early charismatic Anglicans, I didn't even realize that until later, that I needed to really embrace the infilling 
uh, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And it was that then that I think really compelled me on to dig deep. You know, the, Jim and Marion gave me a Bible when I went off to Bible school because I didn't have one. And in it, they wrote, you know, that wonderful instruction to Timothy study, which is something I did not want to do. I didn't know I could do. My guidance counselor in the 10th grade called me in and told me I was too stupid to be in school and I should just drop out and get a job in the gold mines or in the lumber yards, which were the primary industries in Timmins at that time. And so I didn't think I could learn, but Jim and Marion wrote study, underlined it in my Bible, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the key to all of that, again, was to to understand the empowering and revelational role of the spirit that wrote the word through men and women of faith. And uh, so that, that's how I think my, my journey began. And fortunately, when I went to Bible school, uh, you know, I was in a setting where there was this emphasis on the authority of the word empowered through the presence uh, of the Holy Spirit to make that word come alive. But I, I didn't want to just be a hearer. I wanted to be a doer of the word, and uh, that was implanted deep in my spirit through Jim and Marion's witness, but also through my early Bible college training. You were talking about some of the storyline of what got you to that place, and I really sense, in, in at least in my life, that every life experience can become a life lesson that becomes part of my life message. When I think about your life message, even the the, the journey that God brought you through, um, even your experiences in your upbringing, that it really is part of your life message. And when I think about my own life, I realize that there's so many things that maybe I would have done different, but it is part of my life message. And if I can take advantage of those life lessons that come from those, it really does define part of my life message for my life. And um, so when you, you know, you probably experienced a lot of and were probably a part of what we used to call the the charismatic renewal or renewal theology. In fact, you helped put that together, renewal theology one, two, and three, which is very helpful to me. That and also the foundations of Pentecostal theology that I received from Foursquare. But that really didn't come out of a denomination. It really was a sweep of the Holy Spirit in the 70s into the 80s that was transcendent of a denomination or a flavor. So uh, what we, I believe we need today is that same kind of outpouring of God's spirit that breaks down those dividing walls. Would, would that be true of what you sensed back in those days? And, and how do you see that context for today? I think we're, you know, we're in an era where God needs to move uh, distinctively in the context of where we are. After I had finished my master's degree at Michigan State, was the dean of students at uh, Spring Arbor University when uh, what we refer to as the Asbury Revival hit mm-hmm. in the early 70s. It was a phenomenal move of God. We moved across 50 or 60 of our uh, Christian uh, college campuses. Uh, it hit our campus in the middle of the night, and we uh, stopped uh, you know, classes for over two weeks. Where It was just 24-7, people coming to faith, people being filled with the Holy Spirit, people confessing sin, people ministering to each other. And it was distinctive. And, and those of us who have had those dramatic experiences tend to want to create a, a, a pattern that we think God needs to move in that same way again. And, uh, and I think probably one of the, the things that keeps the Holy Spirit from moving is our 
our predispositions to how we think he should move based on how we experienced him in the past. And, uh, and I think that's where we are today. I think so many of the, the basic underpinnings, you know, it used to be when, you know, Billy Graham would get up and say, the Bible says that that had authority. Today, the vast majority of people, particularly in Western culture, you know, say, well, so what? The Bible has no relevance to me whatsoever. And so, you know, we have to really be open to a, a new wine and a new wineskins of the spirits outpouring today. And again, I think one of the key factors is that there needs to be uh, significantly enhanced hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I, I think so often in our contemporary Christianity, the concept of conviction of sin, uh, the reality that all have sinned and, and come short of the glory of God, uh, you know, has has been minimized. And we had some excesses back in the day, right? I mean, there were there were some uh, evangelists I know that you know tried to scare the he double hockey sticks out of you every time they spoke, and uh, you know that uh, was excessive in some ways. But I think we're missing today, you know, a real consciousness of sin, and the only way that can happen, obviously is through the convicting outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a fresh way. I'm uh, encouraged uh, with this next generation of leaders I'm seeing. I think uh, one of the things God is doing, uh, you know, Pat Robertson wrote a book, uh, Shouted from the Housetops, and uh, that scripture refers to the fact that if we're not willing to acknowledge our sin, then God is going to, to make a public demonstration of those sins by shouting it from the housetops. And, and we've lived in an era, particularly the last couple of decades, where it's been Christian hero worship. And, and boy, it's really been interesting how the Lord has been pretty pointedly delivering us from men and women who really serve him for the prestige and, and uh, presence that, that uh, they get from serving him. And I think we're in an era where uh, God is, is going to use less of the heroes of the faith, like we've historically known them, and is going to be working more and more with, with uh, those folk who, who really come from the least, the left, and the lost. Uh, I'm convinced that much of what we're going to see in terms of the contemporary move of God is going to come from, you know, the two-thirds world. Uh, and because we in the Western Christian world, unfortunately, have become numb to this need to seek deeply uh, hunger and thirst for God's righteousness in our own lives so that he can use us as instruments to help others recognize that they need Jesus. I mean, if you, if you don't think you're a sinner, then why do you need a Savior? And again, I'm not suggesting we go you know, overboard in terms of shouting sins, but I do think we need that deep work of the Holy Spirit. And, and at the Asbury revivals in the early 70s, that was the key. I was amazed uh, as I came to campus uh, each day, how many students were under deep, deep conviction that their lives were not honoring to God and pleasing to him. And so much of the work we did at the altars of the campus church and in the hallways and in the dorm rooms really we're helping people understand that uh, as far as the East is from the West, he can remove our transgressions from us. They can be cast into the sea of his forgetfulness, never to be remembered against us anymore. And I think the key to what needs to happen today is a, 
a rediscovery of we need a savior. And we need a savior then who is committed to never leave us or forsake us uh, because he has sent his Holy Spirit to work in us and work through us so that we can be instruments of righteousness. You got me preaching, Doug. Good, I'm glad. Well, you had mentioned something earlier too that I can't get out of my mind. And that is it's something the Lord really dealt with me about. When I was traveling and doing things with Dr. Evan Lewis Cole back in the early 80s and getting to meet a lot of people that you would consider, you know, uh, names in the Christian world. And, you know, as a young man in my early 20s, it was like, I mean, my mid 20s, I was like, you know, enamored at first. And the Lord brought me to my knees and reminded me, he said, never forget where you've come from and I will take you to the nations. And I, that time I was thinking, well, I can't even handle the, all the homeless people living with me and much less go to the nations, right? But literally, I've seen how the Lord, if we, we're not enamored with celebrity or in love with uh, what we do, but recognize it's a privilege of his calling. And I, I love David Livingston's quote that was attributed to him that when he said, why is it that when, uh, when an earthly king commissions us, we consider it an honor? But when the heavenly king commissions us, we call it a sacrifice. And so every morning, one of my two wow. prayer times, I actually say that to the Lord, say, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of your calling. I thank you, Lord. It's an honor and a privilege in many regards. It, it, yes, we make personal sacrifices to walk in this journey, but it's not really a sacrifice. It's a privilege for God's calling. Amen. Something I wrote uh, just the other day and posted on some social media, I said, throughout history, there are reports of great awakenings and revivals. Revivals of the past began with a deep hunger and desire for prayer and intimacy with God, bringing people to a place of repentance and a call to consecration and holiness. Now, today, those words mean so much different than it did back then. For me, it wasn't some sort of external piety. It was this inward consecration of the heart where God had my life. He, he was the Lord of every part of my life. And I didn't want to do anything to separate me from the presence of God. In an article you wrote a few years ago called The Truth About Yielding to Christ, you said, those who desire to serve as Jesus did must unite around a commitment to humility, self-denial, and other-centeredness. Actions and attitudes for those who would be like Jesus must be without selfish ambition and prideful arrogance. Would you kind of unpack that a little bit? I think that uh, this calling that we want to lead like Jesus would lead really is, is kind of the starting point for us understanding. And uh, Dr. Corne Becker, who is the, the dean of the School of Theology at Regent University, and I, when I was there, worked together on trying to decide what does it really mean to lead like Jesus, to be a leader who emulates Jesus. And we ended up landing on Philippians 2 and that wonderful, you know, canonic hymn that talks about the nature of Christ's motivations and attitudes. And this idea of kenosis, this idea of self-emptying, uh, has become for me a very important benchmark against which, you know, my own leadership is measured uh, hopefully daily with the help of the Holy Spirit, but also then in my work with, uh, with current and emerging leaders as well. And the wonderful thing about Philippians 2 is, is the focus of leadership. So much of what we see, uh, Doug, in current Christian literature on leadership, and by the way, I, I have deeply appreciated uh, your book, The Leadership Awakening, because you've caught what my concern has been, and is that, that leadership is all about the leader. It's not. Leadership is about the led. And you look at uh, Jesus, 
who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And having been found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And one of the things that I find, particularly in the triage work with leaders who are in crisis, is that they've forgotten that leadership's not about them. Leadership is about meeting the needs of the lead and basically adapting and changing and emptying yourself of your preferences, your predispositions. A lot of those are good. A lot of those God can sanctify and use, but only if they're motivated primarily out of a desire to uh, sacrificially serve those that God has called us to lead. And so I, I think the fundamental issue in the goal of, of humility, uh, which is such an important aspect of manifestation that the spirit is really working. Because, you know, the thing about the spirit is that he never draws attention to himself, right? Uh, the, the, when the Holy Spirit moves, and this was part of my struggle within the uh, Pentecostal and charismatic movement, there seemed to be a lot of emphasis on the person delivering their giftedness. And the issue is, is it really pointing to the person or is it pointing to Jesus? Yeah. And so I think that uh, for me, at least, the, the key to this unpacking of what it means to serve like Jesus served is to always be asking myself, Lord, what is it that these that you've given me to lead really need at this point? Uh, and sometimes, and uh, Wayne Hilston, who was on with us, was in our doctor ministry program, was subjected to a lot of this kind of discussion that came out of Dr. Becker's and my uh, research and teaching. And that is, you know, there are some times when you've got to be very directive and forceful. My particular approach to, to leadership, my preferred approach is collaborative to get people together and come to conclusions together. But if you're the captain of the Titanic, it's not time to call a committee meeting. You've got to have decisive action and be a directed leader in order to get people off the ship and saved. And again, that's the orientation. What's the goal here? Not to be a directive dictatorial leader, but to exercise whatever leadership style is needed in order to meet the needs of the people that God has entrusted to you at this moment. The other thing I've learned too particularly for leaders who are in long-term relationships uh, in their leadership role, they're founders of organizations, is that they often don't realize that they need to adapt as the organization grows and changes. And that's a humility factor as well, because you know, you've gotten used to doing things a certain way. You've had modalities and methodologies that you've been successful at. But just because that worked a week ago or 10 years ago, in terms of the style, it may not work today or tomorrow. Uh, one of the things that I'm using a lot is a phrase that says, what got us here may not likely get us to where we need to be because things have been upended so dramatically. And it's the humble leader who is willing to say, you know, this is my preferred style. This is my track record of success. But, oh, God, help me to understand what it is this generation. And I love that hymn that says to serve the present age my calling to fulfill, or may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. And again, the emphasis there is not leading out of our own needs and preferences, but adapting our needs and preferences in order to lead in the way 
that would best serve the people. So Dr. Becker and I have spent a lot of time discussing and debating and, and exegeting uh, Philippians 2 uh, to really try and get first in our own spirits this reality that leadership is not about the leader. It's about the lead. So it's not about me. It's about he working through me to meet the needs of the we so that we can accomplish what ultimately will bring glory to Jesus. Uh, I've often uh, thought about, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up with the Lone Ranger um, dating myself here. And at the end of every 30 minute episode weekly, the Lone Ranger would ride out of town uh, and uh, the people would say, who was that masked man? But he had left the silver bullet behind. And I think so often uh, the ego needs of leaders needs the recognition. And really what's most important is not that we be known, but that we've left something behind worth knowing. Mm. And that's the, the, the sovereignty of God and the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and the importance of being fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit so we can truly lead like Jesus would lead. That's powerful. You know, you and I had been talking earlier that uh, I love the quote by A.W. Tozier that uh, says, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. I think so much of what we see in the ceiling of God moves and all of a sudden there's a ceiling and many leaders either become discouraged, get the wind knocked out of them, they compromise and that disqualifies them in that moment. Um, what ends up happening is I think we, we forget that if self gets in the way, we are really limiting God's capacity in and through our lives. That No leader sets out to say, I can't wait to fail. And yet we see such a large percentage of leaders in the business world, marketplace, athletes, pastors, uh, we see a wide range of leaders who set out to do something and they end up compromising, failing, discouraged, and leaving their calling. What is your life message to leaders? Secondly, has there been any kind of unexpected detours that almost knocked the wind out of you? And how did you overcome that in your life to continue to persevere? Because men like you and, and other men and women that that I've been able to glean from and look up to, there are some commonalities that are kind of an uh, underlying commonalities of, of your longevity of leadership. So share with us what areas of unexpected detours, what's your life message to leaders? And then finally, how do we keep our focus on our destination and not so much what we're going through, especially in the global context we're in today? Let me start with that second detour concern. I was one of the youngest ordained uh, clergy in our denomination. I ended up coming back to Toronto to pastor the largest church in our denomination in Canada. And, uh, you know, the first year of that pastoral work was just phenomenal. But the second year, I hit a wall. It was like the heavens, you know, we used to say the heavens were brass and, you know, the, the, the joy of ministry was gone. And, and I was really struggling. And wondering if I maybe should just give up and, you know, go do something else in terms of pastoring. The parsonage, the manse was next door to the church. And so in my deep struggle, I would go over, um, particularly on Saturday nights, I thought, I don't have anything to give anymore. I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to share with the congregation on Sunday. And so Saturday evening, I would go and kneel at the altar in the, in the church and just cry out to God. And after a few weeks of that, and I don't hear voices, but boy, there are times, and, and I'm sure those listening have had those too, when the impression of the Holy Spirit is so direct and so strong that it's almost audible. 
And as I was crying, I said, God, I don't know what's going on. I, you know, I, I, what's happening here? And uh, I, I got a word. Uh, and, and for people within our uh, Pentecostal tradition, you know, that, that's a common kind of expression. For those who aren't, it's a, a little off-putting sometimes. But I got a clear word where God said, you got to forgive your dad. Now, my dad had abandoned us. And uh, I mean, it was awful. My mother had physical and emotional issues, and we had to live off welfare. And if it wasn't for the Salvation Army down the street, we wouldn't have had groceries. And it was tough. And my mom, uh, you know, I could deal with. And But my dad, you know, was a bright, gifted man, but alcoholism had caused him to, to abandon his family. And so I was angry with him. And that really struck me. Uh, you know, I, here I am, a, an ambassador of the gospel, which is the message of forgiveness. And I had not really done the deep work of letting uh, forgiveness. And it had, it had grown, as the Bible says, a root of bitterness in my spirit toward my father. Uh, I struggled with that. And, said, you know, and for the next two or three or four Saturdays, whatever length it was, you know, I would pray and I'd get the same word. You've got to forgive your dad. And I hadn't seen my dad. Uh, I didn't know where he was. And so I, I can remember this dialogue, and again, not hearing voices, but almost audible. My saying, you know, God, I, I can't forgive my dad. And the Spirit spoke back and said, did you say you can't or you won't? And I had to soak in that a while. And I finally said, well, I guess I would if I could. And it was almost instantaneous. The Holy Spirit spoke back to me and said, then why not let the Christ, the Jesus in you, who forgave you, forgive your dad through you? And at that moment, I thought, okay, you know, I, I guess if I ever see my dad again, and to be honest with you, I thought I probably never would. I said, okay, you know, if there's ever the opportunity for me to forgive my dad, uh, I'll do that. Uh, I'm open to it. A few weeks later, I, because of the work of the Salvation Army uh, in our family's life of sustaining us, uh, when I was pastoring in the city of Toronto, I would go down to the Harbor Light Mission in downtown Toronto, and uh, where they would basically minister every night to two or 300 drug addicts and street kids and prostitutes and down and outers. And uh, I was speaking one night in their chapel. Uh, it had about 200 folk or so come in off the streets. Uh, the Salvation Army uh, forces them to sit through, you know, a little bit of a gospel message before they feed them and give them uh, the, the night and uh, night's rest. And so I preached a very simple salvation message like I had before. Uh, you know, in the Salvation Army, they have the, the habit, at least they did back then, they take the front pew and turn it around to face the congregation and call it the mercy seat. And they invite people to respond to the gospel message by coming and kneeling at the mercy seat. So that was something I was familiar with. And at the end of the service, uh, you know, I gave the altar call, we sang a couple of verses and nobody moved. And the captain leaned over and said, Dave, give it again. And uh, so I gave, you know, the altar call a second time about inviting people. Nobody moved except way in the back. Back corner, a man got up and he started down the outer aisle. And when he got halfway down, I recognized him. Hmm. It was my dad. He'd come in off the street that night. I didn't know he was there. He was a drunk on the streets. And he came and he knelt at the mercy seat mm. and the captain and myself led him to Jesus. And the Salvation Army took him in and the training college, the officer's training college was in Toronto at that time. And he was a cook and he 
then cooked for the Salvation Army Training College for several months. And those young officers in training ministered to him day in and day out. And, and I tell you, Doug, a burden lifted off my spirit. And I didn't realize just how critical it was that I be a forgiver in order to be an instrument of forgiveness. And my dad struggled with his alcohol off and on after that, uh, which is often the challenge with that demon of alcoholism. But uh, I did his funeral. It was a very small funeral with the confidence that he had, he had made his way into the kingdom. And, uh, and God had privileged me. And later, I was also able to see my mom come to Christ as well. And so both of my family, you know, both of my parents uh, today are in the, they were reconciled together. But somehow I believe in heaven, they're reconciled somehow because of Jesus. Mm. And so often there are things in our lives that we just haven't taken care of. And I find in my work with the clergy who are in trouble or leaders, Christian leaders who are in trouble, that we need the, the discerning gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to speak a clear word that gets to the center of what the real issue is, so that they can be freed indeed to continue their ministry. I'm so thankful that that root of bitterness was taken care of early in my 20s, so that the rest of my life then, and imperfectly as we all are, has been lived out with the, with the message that to lead People, I, there, there's a very famous healing evangelist that I won't name specifically, but uh, he wanted to be on the 700 Club. And Pat had me interview him because I had a past relationship with him. And uh, Pat was uncomfortable with him because of the way he essentially uh, did his ministry. It was quite flamboyant. And so you know, as I was ministering to him and talking with him, uh, I said to him, and this was the spirit, I said, my brother, when you're ministering, what do you see? And he says, well, I see myself ministering in the power of God and, and ministering, uh, you know, to uh, the word of God powerfully. And I said, well, can I suggest to you something that you need a different point of view? And he said, what do you mean, brother David? And I said, it says that when Jesus healed, he said, Jesus, having compassion on them, healed them. I said, can I ask you honestly, is your heart broken every time you step into the pulpit for the people who have gathered? And I could see the Holy Spirit hit him with a lightning bolt, you know, of revelation. And he said, oh, brother David, I have to confess to you that I've been so caught up in my ministry and the things that God has been doing through me, that my heart no longer breaks mm. for the least, the left, and the lost out there. And so I, 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 every time I come into a ministry opportunity, I say, Lord, please, please help me understand to whom you're a ministry. One of my uh, mentors was the Reverend David Maines mm. of 100 Huntley Street, and I would uh, co-host the program from time to time with him. He had such a broken heart for the people. And I said to David, you know, what is the key to your ministry through this television medium? And he said, David, I've always felt that TV is, is not a mass medium. It's an intimate one-to-one -one opportunity I have. And he said, when I look into the camera lens, he said, I don't see thousands of people. I see one individual who could be hurting out there and broken. 
and who needs the gospel. And I thought, oh God, may I always understand that if I'm speaking to doctoral students, or if I'm ministering in a camp meeting situation, or I'm one-on-one with a pastor who has failed uh, miserably, help my heart to be broken for them. Mm. And I think, Doug, that's the key, you know, for us to be humble ministers of Christ, that Jesus humbled himself and then was broken for us, left his home in glory, and laid aside all of the privilege and perks of being the Son of God in order to become the Son of Man Mm. and to minister, because as he looked on the crowds, he had compassion on them. And then he healed them. Amen. I remember David Wilkerson used to share with me when I was a young minister that before you get up before the people, make sure you weep between the porch and the altar for those that you're going to be ministering to. And it reminds me of even Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, when you pray, God, break my heart with the things that break yours. So one of the themes of our ministry all these decades now has been while men reach for thrones to build their own kingdoms, Jesus reached for a towel to wash men's feet. Yep. So thank you so much today. Um, I keep wanting to call you Dr. Geyertson, just out of respect, but uh, David, so thank you for being with us. Would you pray with us and pray for all those that will be watching uh, this uh, recording and for those who will be listening to the podcast, that they would find that place of your life message that God has given you and also be able to persevere past whatever they're going through. Father, we just uh, stand amazed. Uh, that old gospel song, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I wonder how he could love us sinners that need to be saved and redeemed. And so, Father, I just thank you for the privilege of, uh, I've had today with Doug and others who are listening and will be listening to uh, celebrate who you are. And we want to be like Jesus. And we know the key to that is to let the word dwell deeply in our hearts and let the spirit who authored that word make it alive. May it burn in our bones. Give us uh, the heart for the lost Mm. and the heart for those who are struggling to lead the lost. We, We know that none of what we see in contemporary culture and society in terms of the COVID epidemic and the the crisis of leadership and world conflict like we're seeing in Ukraine catches you by surprise. And we're confident that you look down through history and and you saw what this age would need. And you knew we could have been been born a hundred years ago or a hundred years from now, but in your sovereignty, you've caused each of us Uh, in the hearing of my voice, to be alive and available to you in a time like this. And and, and you know uh, that you will equip us. And Father, we ask that somehow 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, faithful are you who have called us, and you will bring it to to pass that that while these times are unprecedented, uh, you have prepared a, a generation of leaders now and those to come who you can use effectively if we'll just surrender our egos, surrender our bitterness, surrender our own needs in order to empty ourselves out for the purpose of being filled full with the the power and presence of Jesus. And so, Lord, while these are tough times for those of us who lead and stand with leaders, we know that uh, you have planned from the foundation of time that we would be 
available and we would be open. Fill us, Lord, in a fresh way. Bless Doug and his ministry and outreach, and uh, may all that he does prosper for the ultimate glory of Jesus. And we'll give you praise in his name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.